that God intends to demonstrate that his son, Jesus Christ, is the Savior of the world. That's what we're seeing here. Now, when we look at the creed that we confess, we come to one of those very difficult passages for a lot of people to utter. And we see that it's been modified in one ways or another um, in our lifetime. The creed said, we believe, or I believe, in the holy Catholic Church. Now, what it does not say is, I believe in the Roman Catholic Church, or I believe in the Eastern Catholic Church, or if you were out on uh, Rivoli Road almost into Bowling Brook, that I believe in the Russian Catholic Church. All of these are various forms of churches that is, if you could say it this way, as a denomination, call themselves Catholic. No, what we're saying is we believe in a holy church that is spread throughout the known world. And that's what we believe in. Now, I'm often, and not to be confused with being here, but I'm often going through dementia units. Only Katie would laugh, huh? Only one, Katie. The rest of them think it's too sober. You know, you know it. <laughs> and it's kind of funny. It can be mid-morning or mid-afternoon, and you'll be in there. One of the staff will be leading a time of singing. And here are these people, men and women, and they're sitting in various places in the room, and they've got some type of like a Methodist or Baptist songbook in their hand. And they're singing the, the, the songs of the church. Oh, they'll sing the church's one foundation with great zeal. Now, when they're singing this, oftentimes the books are closed. Sometimes the books are upside down. Almost invariably, they're not on the page of whatever it is that they're singing. All these people who, if you were to go and speak to them and say, Now, where did you grow up? What kind of church? They say, I grew up in the Baptist church. You can ask some of them. Some will say, I grew up in the Catholic church. Some will say, I grew up in the Episcopalian church. Some of them are going to tell you, you name it, you're going to cover the entire alphabet. But. As music and songs from their heart, they share a Catholic faith, a common faith, and it's being expressed. They might not be able to tell you the names of their children, but they can sing the old rugged cross, they can sing blessed assurance, they can sing amazing grace, and you can just, I mean, there's almost no limit to the number of those type of songs that they know. And when they sing them, you can tell how deeply impressed these words had been upon them throughout their life. This is, in a sense, a picture of what we talk about when we talk about a holy Catholic church. It breaks down all of this stuff that we've created as fallen, sinful creatures. 
it breaks all of that down. And that's really the idea of when we say a holy Catholic church. Now, when you consider the church as it's to be considered from the New Testament, it's God's agency. The God who created this world and all that it contains, the God of whom Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The God who now has Christ seated at his right hand, and that that Christ will come in return and there'll be a new heaven and there's going to be a new earth. This church that this God of creation, salvation, and consummation is established is meant to embrace people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's what we see when we look at the the, the idea of what the church should be. Now, when we think of God's desire for the church of Jesus Christ, first of all, that it would be Catholic spatially. In other words, that if you were to go to New Zealand today, you would be able to find a church there where people are going to be believing almost identically to what the things that we hold in common in this room. If you were to go to Alaska, you would find the same thing. Um, you could go almost anywhere on the face of the, the globe, including Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan, and there are Christian congregations that are meeting there, and they believe the same things that we believe. So not only is the church Catholic in space and that it's in every place, it's basically Catholic in doctrine, holding the essentials of the Christian faith in a common trust. We believe in God the Father. We believe in God the Son. We believe in God the Holy Spirit. We believe in sin. We believe in salvation. We believe in eternal life. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe that Christ is going to return at the end of the age. Now, there are a lot of things under each one of those heads where we could parse, and one denomination is going to emphasize something in one of those doctrines that doesn't quite square with the way another denomination emphasizes it. But in the main, we, ha we are Catholic in doctrine. And we're Catholic in people. We're all true believers. The Catholic Church primarily is to be understood as including all those who are true believers, not people who are faking it, not people who are confused, but people who genuinely believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we've got some things that we can look at here when we talk about the Old Testament background. But then really, instead of just saying the Old Testament background, the New Testament background, we ought to say the Old Testament background and Pentecost. Those two things become the basis on which we think of the church being Catholic. The Old Testament, when we take it as a unit from Genesis to the book of Malachi, it's always forward-looking. 
It's never looking at itself as having arrived. It's never looking into the past and thinking about the past. There are promises. There are prophecies. And this caused the person of faith to stretch out into the future to try to grasp the things that God was going to be doing. We should be the same way ourselves. There is still much that God has promised that he is going to do. But the Old Testament was forward-reaching. It was anticipating that Jesus would be the Lord of all the nations. And so that's the, the general sense of the Old Testament. Now, when you come to Abraham, Abraham was given many promises And one of those was that he would become a great nation. Now, do you remember how the language was given? There were a couple word pictures. One was, go outside and count the stars, Abraham, if you're able to count them, because so shall your offspring be. Or that your offspring would be as numerous as the grains of sand at the sea. This kind of language, a great nation, not a nation. When we think about the end and we think about heaven, um, there's an old theological question that comes up, and it's stated in a negative way, and it's stated like this, are there but few that be saved? Are there but few that be saved? Now, unfortunately, for many church people, they would answer that question, yes. Now, I want you to check yourself. If that's the way you think, I want you to go back to the promise to Abraham. Your descendants, and he's not talking about people that are physically Jewish. He's talking about people who will have the faith of Abraham. They will be as numerous is the stars in the heaven or the sand on the shore of the sea. This is what the scriptures are telling us. Now, that's kind of a thought that gives us Catholicity. It gives us largeness. It gives us a universal picture. Abraham was promised that in him all the world would be blessed. Now, that particular promise narrows its focus down into the person of Jesus Christ. And what are we told about Jesus? God so loved the world that he saved his own, sent his only begotten son, that Jesus should be the savior of the world, that he would be the king of kings, that he would be the Lord of lords. This is not smallness. This is expansiveness. And this is another reason we should understand the desire of God that the church of Jesus Christ be Catholic, that it would expand and take in now the entire scope of world civilization. Now you go ahead into the scriptures and you come to Moses. You see that to Moses was given a law in a priesthood. When we look at Moses himself, he was a prophet. 
And you see in Jesus that all of these things are subsumed. He is the prophet, priest, and then ultimately in David, he is the king. And he's the king to rule over all the world. He's God's prophet to the whole world. He is the priest, the great high priest of the whole world. Now, the idea here is that God, through his son as a prophet, isn't going to speak into a corner. And that his priesthood isn't going to sanctify a few. Or that his kingship is going to be on over some minutia of a kingdom. But he's going to be the prophet, priest, and king of God over this world. And all of this is going to reflect the greatness of God's plan for the church. When God placed Abraham and then later the nation of Israel in a piece of geography and said, this is the land I'm going to give you, he did not give him just any old piece of property. He could have put him, if you could say it this way, in the bottom of South Africa, down there around the Cape Horn or whatever it is, or in the bottom of South America or some other extremity. He didn't. Now, when we think of what God did in placing Israel, what was the old adage about all roads lead to where in the ancient world? All roads lead to Rome. Okay, good enough. We'll give Rome that. But all the great roads intersected in Israel. Now, you think today, where is world conflict? World conflict hasn't been any place else in the entire history of the world. World conflict's been right on that same dime. Think of what that means. The roads of the Far East came to come into the Southern Hemisphere, and when they did, they went right through Israel. When Western Europe came into the Southern Hemisphere, they came right through Israel. And God put Israel there as a witness, not merely for their own good, but that this salvation that God had wrought in the earth would be carried to the ends of the world by placing it at this great intersection of the ancient world. Now, the other thing that God did in the Old Testament, because of the waywardness of his people, he dispersed them. So God took as a means of disciplining his people, and he took them out of this geographic hub, and you find that the Jews were everywhere. They were in Africa, they were in Rome, they were in Spain, they were in India, they were literally everywhere. And this began to be the means by which the gospel would become a universal gospel through these Jews. 
Now, just simply, Jesus comes. And we've gone over the entire meaning of Jesus' coming to be the Savior of the world. But he's here only a short time and even a shorter time of ministry, and then he returns to heaven. And he commissions the apostles to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, in Galatians 4.4, there's a passage that reads, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And the commentators have sought to understand this term in the fullness of time. And for some reason, there is a common agreement that what that word and phrase means is this. One, that in the fullness of time, the Jews were dispersed over the modern world. There were colonies of Jews everywhere. Secondly, that in the fullness of time, there was a universal language, much the way uh, the American version of the English language is an international language of trade today, so was the Greek language of this period of time. People spoke Greek in order to do business, and so there was this facilitation of communication. The Roman government had provided roads and laws in a military that gave what was known at that time as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And so there was stability in the world at this, what is called the fullness of time. Now, I'm always saying things that are kind of, I don't know, I think they're, I don't hear anybody else saying them, so I think they must be odd. So maybe they're odd. But you see, in a similar way to our time, the fullness of time, Everything was ready. Everything was ready. But nothing was happening. During my lifetime, just even since I started preparing for the ministry, as I've said before, we started out with one Reformed seminary. Now there's like five Reformed seminaries of one fashion or another have multiplied. Many of the seminaries that are in the United States have become more conservative. Uh, you have a group of fellowship of Christian firemen out there somewhere, you guys? You got one, don't you? Fellowship of Christian librarians? I'm sure they're there. Lawyers? Sure they're there. Doctors? No, they're there. Uh, you just you just have no idea how many fellowships of Christian this and that there are, and they're all across our nation. We got everything ready. You know, I don't see anything happening. It's sad. To me, it's sad. All the efforts of humanity here, Christian humanity, to create all these institutions. Now, that's the way it was in the fullness of time. Everything was ready. Then Christ came and ascended into heaven. And when he ascended into heaven, he poured out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then everything changed. Then 
everything changed. When the day of Pentecost came, first of all, these people that were Galileans are now speaking in languages that they've never had any exposure to at all. They're talking about the things of God, and they're probably in their mind thinking Galilean, but it's coming out in Spanish. It's coming out in French, if you will. It's coming out in Italian. It's coming out in German. It's coming out in English. It's coming out in Japanese. How in the world did that happen? What's the idea? That God wants a Catholic church, a church that's going to make up people from every tribe and tongue and people. Those kind of people are there on that day for the day of Pentecost. So it says people from Jewish men and proselyte men to Judaism had come for that great feast. And while they're there, that's when this takes place. Now, once the day of Pentecost comes, it's not merely what you might call a pistol shot event. Boom, the gun goes off, the gun goes silent. It's not like that. When the day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes upon these people and remains on these people. These people now are empowered with the power of God and now they're going back to from wherever they came from and they're going back not just with some message but something that's burning within them that that message has to be conveyed now you're beginning to get a sense this all took place just in a handful of days in Boom, the whole world is hearing about Christ and the apostles haven't even left town. You have to come to grips with that. The apostles haven't even left town. And the gospel has gone out to about every corner of our world. 3,000 people are believers. Now one of the things that happened then that has to be taken into consideration today is sectarianism and nationalism. To that point in time, although Judaism was intended to be a witness in every way to the entire world, they had functioned in a nationalistic and sectarian way. But when the day of Pentecost came, there was the absolute end of what we would think of in the Old Testament as Judaism. Now, when I say it came to an end, I didn't bring it to an end. Theologians didn't bring it to an end. God brought it to an end. If you can think of a rose and you've got a seed to a rose, how much of the rose is in that seed? All of it. Now the question becomes, would you ever be satisfied with the stem? Can you imagine yourself 
that we have up here, an arrangement. And this is what our arrangement looks like. How's, how's this look? This look great? We're all excited about that, aren't we? No. That's Judaism. Do you see that? That's Judaism. Now, this is not to disparage anything. You can't get to this without this. But when you got this, why are you going to major on this? Why would you do that? This is what it was all about. The church. And nationalism ended. That becomes a problem for people who are, if we could say it this way, Anglican. Um, you know, one of our Presbyterian churches down there in Savannah has in relief, in concrete, Congregation of the Church of Scotland. Scotland ain't got no church. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why when our founding fathers, they said we won't have what? The national church. There's a separation right here between church and state. Right here. That takes place on the day of Pentecost. God doesn't want any one nation owning the church. The nations belong to God. The church does not belong to any given nation. So sectarianism and nationalism is concluded. Paul can say in Colossians, there's no distinction between a Jew and a Greek in a church, between a circumcised or an uncircumcised, between a slave and a free person. And in Galatians 3, he says, between a male and a female. In the book of Revelation, in verses 5, 9, and 14, 6, worship in heaven is described as consisting of people from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. When Paul writes to Romans, the Roman church, he knows, Paul knows that when he writes to the Roman church, he is influencing the capital of the world. To influence Rome is to influence the world, to create a new and strong church in Rome ultimately means to change world history. Paul knows that. He writes the book of Romans. It's for no, it can be just very clear, it's the most comprehensive of all Paul's letters. Why didn't write, Paul write the most comprehensive letter to the Galatians or the Colossians or the Ephesians? He didn't. He wrote it to the Roman church because he knew that that would change the world. Here is the goal and the great reality. A holy church. A holy church that is Catholic, that takes in true believers no matter where we are. Who when we talk with one another, we might not agree on speaking in tongues, we might not agree on baptism, we might not agree on church uh, uh, control, whether it's local or whether it's 
more regional or how we're not going to agree about all those things when it comes to the trinity and salvation from sin and hell and satan by faith in christ jesus to eternal life in heaven and a new heaven and a new earth we all believe that we have a catholic doctrine and we can go anywhere in the world and we can find that where are the negatives the negatives in Roman Catholic Church excluding all those that are outside its communion. Their theology has a phrase that has an element of truth to it, but the way they apply it is not true. In the languages outside the church, there's no ordinary means of salvation. What they mean by that is outside the Roman Catholic Church. That's not true. Unitarian Universalist Church. That idea of that church is that everybody is going to be saved. But that violates the doctrine of the uniqueness of Christ and the uniqueness of having faith in Christ. And it's basically an idea that man can save himself. The ecumenical movement that was a part of my early growing up and still lingers around today that says that People who have great and good theology should just not even worry about people who don't believe like they believe, that we should all just work together and embrace one another. Well, there's, again, there's no salvation in this. It's all a human enterprise. It all has a human explanation. But where are the positives? Paul could write this. There's no distinction. He could have written it like this. There's no distinction between a Presbyterian and a Baptist, between a, a Lutheran and an Episcopalian, between a Pentecostal and a Primitive Baptist. Christ is all, and Christ is in all. The idea that we have here as we come and confess this is the strength of what God has been doing and what God is doing and what God will continue to do through the church. Let's pray. Father, bless us and keep us. Help us as we move through this creed to value what it teaches, to see that we're not missing something by being modern, by overlooking what ancient people saw only too well. And help us to see this with a new clarity in our own day and value a common confession of our faith with one another. And we make our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.